We're also at the last week of our Awkward series, and many of you have said very kindly, Treadway, all of your series are awkward, um, which I appreciate that, but uh, this one we are talking about the awkwardness of the Christian church. There's reputations that the Christian church has that we can overcome. Uh, in ways that are, are very powerful to connect with the world around us. And so week one, five weeks ago, we talked about the awkwardness of Christians being fake happy. You know, you come to church, you put that smile on even though you're struggling. We can be honest and open and real as a church. We talked about the awkwardness of being mindless. Some people think you come to church, you gotta shut off your brain, believe in unicorns and fairy tales. Uh, we can love God with our mind, he says, and activate our mind. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the awkwardness of purity and patriarchy that the Christian church has a little bit of a history of being sex-obsessed and kind of the moral police of the world. We can hold to our biblical convictions, but realize that all of us really don't live up fully to our biblical convictions, to hold those convictions with grace and kindness. Last week, Pastor Ryan talked about hypocrisy. The reason why hypocrisy tends to be prevalent in the Christian church is because we believe we get what we deserve from God, so we have to obey him and comply with the rules. That sets us up to judge others like these religious leaders did during the time of Christ, but all of us are prone to failure. And so when we pretend to be the judge and superior and when we fail, there's hypocrisy. The greatest remedy of hypocrisy is to know that we have a right relationship with God only by his grace through Jesus Christ based on nothing we do that gives us the humility to, to walk in a way that is honest and real, walk even through the struggles and failures of life and avoid being the judge of others. Today we're gonna to talk about Christian grumpiness. We have a reputation sometimes of being grumpy. You know, pulpit pounders, kind of angry, hellfire brimstone. Uh, I love this dude right there. <laughs> now to his credit, he turned his own pulpit pounding into a, a gif. And uh, anyway, I uh, love the gifts. But we don't have to be grumpy. We can be kind and pleasant, right? Now to be fair, not everyone in the Christian church is grumpy. In fact, all of these awkward subjects don't, you know, cast judgment on the whole church, but there are enough people who are grumpy in the church to build a little bit of a reputation. I've got to say, I am so thrilled to be a part of a church like ours. This is not a grumpy church. It is not an angry church. I could not live in an uptight church. There's no way I could do it. This is a, a laid back, kind of chilled out church. We're growing together in God's word. We're growing towards the likeness of Christ, but we're a bunch of really cool people that are enjoying life, enjoying our walk with God, enjoying our family, enjoying being together and doing a bunch of good stuff. So I wanna personally thank you for not being a grumpy church. I mean, I am thrilled at that. Thank you very, very much. But the broader Christian church has this reputation sometimes. And what is it that makes people grumpy? Well, loss makes people grumpy. Loss can make people grumpy. Now, if you knew my grandfather on my mother's side, you might think he was grumpy and he came across grumpy. He kept to himself a lot. He had the same routines every day, every week, the same thing over and over again. He wouldn't smile a lot, wouldn't laugh a lot. So you might look at him and think he was grumpy. During his last days of his life, he talked very freely about what he experienced in World War II. He was in the army on the front lines and he fought in some gnarly battles, including the Battle of the Bulge. And he gave in very explicit and graphic detail how he lost most of his friends during World War II gruesome, horrific stuff. He bore the burden of that loss every day of his life. He was haunted by that loss, haunted by grief, haunted by these images. And so it came across as grumpy, but truly it came from a place of loss. There are Christians today who feel a sense of loss, particularly those who are, let's just say, 40, 50 and higher. There's a sense that 
America used to be a more Christian nation. America used to be more moral. America used to have these nuclear families that went to church and now look at us, right? There's a sense of loss. Well, it's debatable how faithful our country ever was to the Christian ethic, right? That's a matter of debate. But regardless of, uh, of that issue, what is felt is real. And it's felt among some in the Christian faith that we have lost something valuable, lost something treasured. And that sense of loss sometimes comes across as grumpiness. Another thing that causes grumpiness is fear. Fear can cause grumpiness. And it's a fear of what's coming. We live in a post-Christian country. There's no other way to put it. This post-Christian culture was founded with a Christian ethic and now has pretty resoundingly rejected the Christian uh, uh, ethic in, in a way. And, and in this post-Christian uh, culture, there are people who fear what is ahead. They might fear that this country is going off uh, into an abyss of moral decay, uh, abandoning the Christian faith. Some people fear that perhaps even being a Christian at some point could be threatened or being a Christian leader could result in arrests or persecution of some kind. There are people who sense loss and who sense fear who are grumpy in the church. Another thing that causes grumpiness is judgmentalism. Judgment causes grumpiness. Now the sad reality about every religious worldview, including the Christian worldview, is that it's a religious worldview and a religious worldview says you've got to believe the right things and do the right things, and that makes you a better person, and being a better person earns you things from God. Because you're a better person, you can go to heaven instead of hell. Because you're a better person, God will bless your life instead of curse your life. Because you're a better person, he'll answer your prayers instead of ignore your prayers, right? That's the whole religious worldview. It's a, it's a, it's a game that is based on fraud, honestly. It never really works like that. But the religious mindset thinks that's how it works. And so if I'm a good person, that gives me the right then to judge you. If I think I'm a good person, if I think I'm right, I can judge you for being wrong. If I think I'm good, I can judge you for being bad. That's the religious worldview. And it creates grumpiness and anger. Jesus had something to say about this in John 8, 15. Jesus tells religious people, you are judging by human standards. And you can almost hear them say, no, no, I'm, I'm judging by God's standards. I have the word of God and I'm just judging people by the word of God. Well, the word of God is very clear that we are only in a right standing with God based on grace, his forgiving grace through Christ alone, not based on how good I am. So Jesus says all judgment is based on human standards. And then what does Jesus say? I pass judgment on no one. That's Jesus. Who's Jesus? Lord God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. If he's not judging anyone, what gives us the right to judge other people? And so loss, fear, and judgment creates a grumpiness and an anger that the world frankly sees in religious circles, including the, the Christian community. Now the reality is, just to be clear, that anger is not just owned by a subset of Christianity. Anger is becoming the cultural norm. Do you feel that? Do You feel anger sort of rising in American culture today? You can't avoid it. You can't avoid the anger that is out there. It is political anger. It is, it is religious anger. Anger is on the rise in our culture, and it's a very sad thing. The way I like to put it is that our culture is sliding into an angry neo-tribalism. An angry neo-tribalism. Neo means what? Not the lead of the matrix. Neo is new. Tribalism, new tribalism. There's a new tribalism emerging in America. Now, when you think of a tribe, you might think of, you know, half-naked people in a clan running around a forest, right? That's your vision of a tribe. 
A tribe is a group of people who are the same. And the need to be in a group that is the same. That's neo-tribalism. Now, why are we heading into a new form of tribalism? I love the way one person puts it. As the culture slides into postmodernism, people nostalgically look to the comfort, ease, and security of past homogeny or sameness. Now, this is a mouthful. We are in a postmodern culture. What does that mean? Modernism built incredible institutions. It could be institutions of education, institutions of healthcare, institutions of entertainment, institutions of religion, institutions of politics. So modernism built institutions. One of the things that an institution brings is clusters of people who believe the same things or who are like-minded, right? Institutions attract people who are the same into the institution that shares the same values. Postmodernism has blurred those institutions or made those institutions irrelevant. Postmodernism forces the entire world together. Because of technology, World Wide Web, social media, you can't escape the opinions and values of other people. And so we are almost forced right in our face to experience values that are different than us. And there are fewer and fewer institutions to run to for safety. So postmodernism is a culture in which the world is shoved together. And as the world is shoved together, people get nervous about that and they want a sense of sameness. They want a sense of tribalism. And so they'll nostalgically look back to a time where they were safer, when they were around like-minded people all the time, where there weren't these, this almost assault of other opinions coming at you every single day, all day. So people are wanting to go back to a tribe. And that's what's happening today. Politics is, is neo-tribalism. I want to be around people who believe what I believe, and we've got each other's backs, and you affirm me, and I'll affirm you, and those people are the enemies. That's neo-tribalism. Tribes make us feel safe. Tribes make us feel comforted and connected and affirmed. Tribes make our lives a little cleaner and a little easier. And listen, our brains are wired for tribalism. Our brains are wired for safety. Our brains are wired for security, and we are more secure when we are around a lot of people who look like us, believe like us, have the same values as us, because we know we have each other's backs. When it all goes down, we have each other's backs. And so it's very difficult to push past tribalism into a new kind of reality that Jesus calls us to. And we experience tribalism every day. I travel more than I would like to, and as I'm on the road, I uh, listen to a lot of serious XM radio. And every time a commercial comes on, I change the channel. So I'm channel hopping all over the place, uh, talk radio, some music, sports, news. And I listen to a bunch of different news stations. Just the other day, this is just two, maybe three days ago, I'm listening to a left-leaning news channel, and they are detailing the assault that is happening from the conservatives against the liberals. I turn the channel, and immediately I'm on a right-leaning news channel that is detailing how People on the left are assaulting conservatives. And it's just, it's just stoking fires, fires of grumpiness, fires of anger, fires of divisiveness. Politics does it, news media does it, religion does it. These are institutions that want money, that want votes, that want power. And the way these institutions get votes, money, and power is by inciting anger. That's been called red meat. Give the crowds red meat. So I brought some red meat here. Give the crowds red meat. Now, that, that phrase, red meat, comes from um, uh, a dog handling. Now, many of you may not 
be in the industry of dog handling. But a couple hundred years ago, it was thought that if you give dogs raw meat, it will make them angry. So that's where the phrase, give them raw meat, comes from. And so now, in, in political circles, if there's a politician who's giving a stump speech, and it's inciting anger and inciting grumpiness and kind of rallying the, the troops, right? You're, just, you're, you're saying things that incite people to anger. That's giving the crowds raw meat, as though there are a bunch of dogs out there. You throw them raw meat, and they'll just pounce on it and devour it, and, ah, and then be angry and ready to you know, vote and give money. Politics does that, news media does that, religion does that. And we have a choice to make. We have a choice to make. Do we want to be an angry dog just going after red meat from politicians and religious leaders or whatever? Or do we want to be more civil? Do we want to be nice and kind and pleasant? Do we want to love everyone everywhere? We have that choice. And I'd encourage us to not engage in this angry gamesmanship of people throwing red meat out there. We don't have to participate in that. We can be super chill people. We can be kind and pleasant and loving. We can hold our convictions, but hold them with grace. There's nothing wrong with holding our convictions, holding our biblical convictions in church, holding our biblical convictions in our families, holding our political convictions. No problem holding that, but don't hold them as weapons to clobber people with. Hold them with grace and humility. We can befriend people. We can befriend people who are very unlike us from different backgrounds and different opinions. I'll, I'll close out with that in about 18 minutes here. We can value people over positions. We can value people over positions. We look at God's heart through God's word. We look at the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus wasn't out here to just give a list of positions to believe in. He says life is all about relationship. He's the son sent from a relational heavenly father to show us the love of the father so that we can have a relationship with God the father through Jesus Christ as he lays his life down to forgive the sins of the world and rises again from the dead to give us new and eternal life. This is the heart of Christ for people, not positions. So how can we replace anger with kindness? How can we replace anger with kindness? Let's look at Joseph in the Old Testament. For those of you who uh, were raised in Sunday school, you know the story of Joseph absolutely cold. One of the most famous stories in the Bible. It's found in Genesis chapters 37 through 41. Joseph was one of the younger brothers. He had 11 other brothers. That's a big family. He was one of the younger ones. Um, Jacob, his dad, favored him more than all the others. Told everybody, hey, I favor Joseph. I'm giving him the cool clothes, right? And, um, and so the other brothers resented Joseph. So they did what every brother would do. You get together and you say, hey, do we murder him or sell him into slavery? Right? I'm sure you've had that conversation in your own house. Do we murder him or sell him into slavery? Reuben stepped up, being the very kind one, and says, let's sell him into slavery. So he's sold to a, a wealthy Egyptian family, and, uh, and he serves that family well. He rises in prominence in that family. And then the wife of the family accuses Joseph of attempted sexual assault. He gets thrown right into jail. So here he has the injustice of being sold into slavery by his own family, the injustice of being wrongly accused of, se of sexual assault thrown into jail, and he's sitting there, and what does he choose? He chooses the road of grace. Not bitterness, not anger, not judgment, not wrath. He's a very wise person who is gifted by God to interpret dreams. The Pharaoh of Egypt, the leader of Egypt, knows of his skill, brings him into his household, and he rises to be the prince of Egypt. That's what the cartoons say, prince of Egypt. And in that powerful position, 
there was a famine that hit the land. His brothers that sold him into slavery now have to come to Egypt begging for food, begging for their own survival. And who do they come to? Joseph. What does Joseph do? To be honest, he makes them squirm a little bit, right? But then he gives them what they need, gives them food, comes down to their level and hugs them, embraces them, sheds tears together. We're back together as a family. If you were Joseph, is that how you would respond to your brothers who are deciding whether to murder you or sell you into slavery? Is that how you would respond with forgiveness and grace and kindness? I've got to look at my own life and think, okay, am am I that kind of person? Am I like Joseph or would I hang on with that loss and with that fear? Would I hang on to a spirit of judgment or would I be gracious and kind? Now, Joseph is an archetype of the one that we celebrate and worship. That's Jesus Christ, right? So let's look at the example of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to be a servant of all. And, and here he was born into a religious community. And that religious community navigated the religious commandments. And so famously, a lawyer comes to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, what's the most important commandments of the 611 commandments in the Old Testament, the books of Moses, what are the most important? And famously, Jesus says this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. All the 600 commandments of the Old Testament is summed up in love. All the prophets, all of the Old Testament is summed up in love. Jesus says you don't have to navigate all these commandments. Just love God and love others. As God loves you, you love him and you love others. Live a life of love and you will be just fine. In other words, Jesus says, love everyone everywhere. This is our 50th year anniversary theme, love everyone everywhere. Jesus says, you do that and you will fulfill the law of God. You'll fulfill the law of God. Now we might think, okay, I can love. I can love people who are just like me, no problem. I can love people who look like me. I can love people who believe like me. I can love people who make around as much money as I do. I can love people who are just like me, no problem. Well, Jesus has something to say about that. Jesus says, that's not really what I'm talking about. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? What's the answer? Zero. Are not not even the tax collectors doing that? Now, if you're a tax collector, don't worry. Jesus isn't talking about you here. You may not be our favorite person to come and visit. But uh, 2,000 years ago, the tax collectors were Hebrews stealing from Hebrews to raise money for Rome and pocketing a bunch themselves. So they were like evil people. And Jesus says, even the evil people can love each other. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that. I mean, the worst of the worst still love each other. Jesus says, hey, listen, if you love people that are like you, that's fine, but that's not really a virtue. That's just normal. Real love is loving people who are unlike you loving people who are different than you. Real love is loving even people who come against you. And Jesus is the perfect example of that. In 1 Peter 2, 23, when Jesus, when they hurled their insults at Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus did exactly what Joseph did in the Old Testament. Jesus struggled. He was rejected by his own hometown. He was rejected by his country. He was was assaulted by Rome and even crucified, and he did not retaliate. He did not respond with grumpiness or anger or wrath. And some people will say, well, that's weakness, right? Stand up for yourself. Get them back. True strength is love. True strength is love. True strength is, is building relationships with people who are unlike you, 
True strength is even loving your enemies. That's true strength. That's true freedom. And that kind of strength comes from believing the gospel and following Jesus Christ. What's the gospel? What's the good news? That even while we were enemies of God, we do not do the right things all the time, right? God's a holy God. We are not. Even though we stand as enemies of God, not doing the right thing, here in our ignorance, not knowing even a lot of who God is or what he's about, here's this big chasm between us and God. God fills that chasm by sending his son. He dies for our sin. He dies for our false flaws and failures. The, the suffering of the world was placed upon Jesus Christ and it swallowed him up. He died to pay for the sins of the world and to bear the suffering and injustice of the world. And then in love, God raised him from the dead to show the whole world that love is victorious over all evil. Love wins, right? That's the theme, love wins. So when life doesn't go well for us, what do we do? Do we sit in grumpiness and anger, judgment and vengeance, or do we love? That's the choice, right? When people come against us, what do we do? Judgment and vengeance, meanness and grumpiness, or do we love? Love wins. That's the message of Jesus Christ, and that should be the heartbeat of the church. I wanna look at, at the early church as we close here. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 is all about unity and love. I urge you, the Apostle Paul says, this is a begging to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. What's the calling we've received? Ephesians 1 through 3 says it. We are called to be loved unconditionally by God. The Apostle Paul says, if you want to live into the calling of being loved by God unconditionally, here's how you live. Be completely humble and gentle. Think of your own life. Think of your own demeanor at home. Think of how you how you live your life at work, the, the things that you project to other people, how you speak to people, how you drive, how you are just you know, living your life in this community around you. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Now this is talking about specifically life in the church. The Apostle Paul, through the Holy Spirit, is begging us to be unified in the church. We're a diverse group here, right? Especially a church like ours, wide open door church. We come from all kinds of backgrounds. Some of you come from religious backgrounds, non-religious backgrounds. We are increasingly multi-ethnic, which I love. We are rich, we are poor, we're everywhere in between. We have different backgrounds of healthy families, um, dysfunctional families. We're all here together. The Apostle Paul says togetherness and diversity is very difficult. But I urge you to be united in love, to be united in love. He's begging us to put in the effort. He says, make the effort. A diverse group requires effort to stay together. Tribalism doesn't require any effort. Tribalism is natural. Go to people who look like you, who believe like you, who make as much money as you, who are the same age as you. Go to those people, right? Go to those people. That doesn't take any work. It takes work to love people. It takes work to love. I remember um, about 10, 12 years ago, uh, I was studying the New Testament, and it just dawned on me that the entire New Testament is about unity and diversity. The entire New Testament is about Jesus bringing the whole world to himself and love. The entire New Testament is about a new church coming together that's a diverse church. Jews, Gentiles, rich, poor, all coming together. The entire New Testament is about bringing oneness and unity. And I realized, uh, again, a decade or so ago, that if that's the focus of 
the ministry of Jesus, if that's the focus of the kingdom of heaven, I had to look at my friends and I realized that my friends all looked like me. My friends were white. I had white people everywhere. White people up to my eyes. Enough of the white people. Most of my friends were, were Christian friends. Most of my friends were about my age with the same age kids, right? Most of my friends were about the same e- e- economy, right? That's just tribalism. Tribalism is natural and tribalism is easy. So I had to realize it's time for me to make the effort to break out of that. So I got involved in all kinds of networks of, of people and uh, in the church and outside the church. And I've got some incredible people that I now call friends that are very diverse. And maybe I've been able to put a little light and love in, the, in their life, but I can guarantee they put a lot of light and love into my life. It takes effort to have a diverse group of friends. And so when we call ourselves as a church, thousands of friends advancing the cause of Christ, that takes some work to be together. It takes some work to stay unified around the cause of Christ. It takes some work to build diverse friendships and love each other. But when we get that vision of oneness, wow, we can't then speak bad about somebody. We wouldn't gossip. We wouldn't demand that my needs get met here at church. We wouldn't demand that things go my way, right? We wouldn't do anything to cause division because we understand the the vision of oneness, the vision of unity. Now we might think to ourselves, okay, you know, unity in the church, no problem, right? No problem, it's a diverse church, which is great, but we all basically believe the same thing, so I can put in the effort to strive for unity within the church, but what about outside the church? Well, the Apostle Paul again speaks to that in Colossians 4, 5, and 6. He says, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. These are people who may not believe the way we believe. They're outside the church. They may not be very friendly to the, to the church world. Be wise in the way you act toward them. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. How do we live outside the church? He says two things, full of grace. Full of grace. Now, that word grace in this context means pleasant. Isn't that a nice word? Pleasant. It's nice to even say. It's pleasant to say pleasant. Pleasant. Ask yourself, do I live a life that is pleasant to everyone? Pleasant in the church, pleasant in my family, but in this context, pleasant outside the church, pleasant in the world, pleasant when you drive, pleasant at work. Are you just the person known as as someone who's pleasant always? That's what it means to live a life full of grace. If God has poured his grace upon us through Jesus Christ, if he's shown us so much love and forgiveness, then shouldn't we spill out pleasantries to others and live a life that is pleasant? And then he says, a life seasoned with salt. That phrase means a life that is enjoyable. Do we live a pleasant and enjoyable life? Are we bringing joy to other people? In fact, a couple thousand years ago, they would, um, salt was very valuable. It was worth a lot of money. And if you had money, you had salt, and you salted everything, right? Uh, I'm kind of a salt fan. I have to battle not too much salt there. But um, you know what it's like to eat bland food that just needs a little pinch of salt? That's how we can live our lives. This life without love is kind of bland. So we're called by God to live a life that is a pinch of salt everywhere we go, just making life a little more enjoyable for others. Isn't that a cool way to think about how to live? When you leave here today, you can live a pleasant life, bringing more joy to other people. And I encourage you, if you go out to lunch today, just add pleasantries around you. Add joy to people around you. Notice their lives. Be kind to them. If your cash register is a little slow, the food can't believe what's going on here. Life's ruined. If somebody's a new person at the cash register having a hard time, don't give them a look. 
Like, what's your problem? They're new. Back off. You know, no problem. I get it. Just be pleasant and add joy to the world. I'm telling you, it's an amazing way to live. This world is full of grumpy people. You don't have to be one of them. Especially given the fact that we're so loved by God through Jesus Christ, right? We've been given so much grace. Let's live a life full of grace and pleasant. Let's live a life that seasons the world with salt. Seasons the world with salt. Makes the world more enjoyable for others. This message can have a profound impact on your life. I know a lot of us think, well, sure, I am pleasant and bring joy to others, but really look at how you live your life. Look at the little details of your life, the things you say to your family, the things you say at work, how you are when things don't go your way. Are you pleasant and do you bring joy to the world around you? Sometimes the honest answer might be no, but I'm gonna work on it. I'm gonna make every effort inside the church and outside the church to avoid grumpiness, to avoid anger, to avoid judgmentalism, and to live a life that's pleasant, bringing joy to this world. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is so clear. We've looked at Joseph, we've looked at the life of Jesus, we've looked at the, the early church, and we see a vision of a life that is pleasant. Even with the losses that we experience, even with the fear sometimes that we experience, even when things don't work our way sometimes, even when people come against us, even when, when we see things in, in this culture that, that make us a little nervous or defensive, I pray that we would live a life of kindness, that we would never be grumpy, never be angry, that we would never live in judgment of other people, but they, that we would live like Joseph, live like Jesus, live to the calling of the early church that built a diverse group of friends as we say thousands of friends from different backgrounds, all different walks of life, getting to know each other, um, getting to build a relationship where, where we can encourage and enrich each other's lives. I pray that we would learn the path of love. Loving people who are just like us is good, but there's no virtue there. Help us to walk an intentional path of loving people who are unlike us, building friendships with people that we might never naturally come across, enriching their lives as they enrich ours. I pray that we would live a life in this world that is full of grace, a pleasant life, seasoned with salt, bringing enjoyment and pleasure to other people. God, I ask that grumpiness and anger and judgment would disappear and the kindness of Christ would emerge in our lives and in our community as a church that you might be honored and people might know the love of Christ because they see it in us. In his name we pray, amen.